Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. I'm genuinely grateful for all of you listening to Forecasting Impact and helping us to serve you in a better way. I'm Maddie, and today I'm going to host our second episode together with my co-host, Shari. Hi, all. I'm Shari. I'm happy to join your second episode. Uh, From now on, I'll be co-host for this podcast, and I'm really looking forward to interviewing our guest of today. Thanks, Shari. It's my great honor to introduce our today's guest, Professor Robert Fites. Professor Robert Fites is a distinguished professor and director of the Center for Marketing Analytics and Forecasting at Lancaster University. He is one of the founders of the International Institute of Forecasters. He had served as the president of the International Institute of Forecasters and editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Forecasting. In 2014, Robert was awarded the prestigious Bill Medal for his sustained contribution to the operations research theory and practice. He has consulted numerous companies and published hundreds of papers in various aspects of supply chain and forecasting. It's our great pleasure to have you today here, Robert. And I'm delighted to be invited. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to start off our conversation by asking you a little bit about your story. Uh, You're one of the researchers that has been in forecasting research for a very, very long time. I'm curious to know, how did you end up in your current position? Well, I suppose like much of forecasting, chance took a a major role in this. I was... um, I studied mathematics at Oxford as an undergraduate and failing to find some attractive job offer. And with a friend who was particularly good at mathematics, who went to MIT, I chose to go to California to uh, initially just do a master's degree, perhaps. But one thing led to another, and I finished up doing a PhD in the mathematics department with an orientation, not so much to statistics, but to applied probability theory. The, the word in the title applied is a misnomer. It's uh, although, ironically, with the epidemiologic crisis that we're facing, it has some uh, relevance to that. It was my PhD topic was in something called branching processes. But I did do some work in uh, applied statistics. University of California, Davis, uh, had an old uh, elderly professor there who had done lots of stuff Uh, using statistical, basic statistical methods uh, by modern day standards in analyzing how you rank wines, for example, a whole variety of projects. And I got sucked into some of these uh, projects and uh, did a piece of consulting. My first paper was on cluster analysis of a parole sample. It's a forecasting problem, of course. You're trying to forecast who's going to be delinquent, who's let out on parole, because I didn't see it at that time in those terms. Anyway, I started to look for a job, as you do, uncertain of my skills as a statistician uh, with very limited experience, really, of applied data analysis. Remember, this is 1970, 71 now, and you're running a regression. A single regression takes 24 hours, punch cards and all that sort of thing. Anyway, I I was born in Manchester and came back to visit my parents and this friend of mine who'd gone to MIT with a 
came out with a PhD in operational research, uh, was working at the Manchester Business School. He was working at the Manchester Business School. I visited him. It was one of the two major business schools in the UK at that time. And uh, he said, they're looking for a statistician here. Are you interested? And I said, no. Anyway, to cut the story short, I finished up with a, a, a very uh, good job at Manchester. I prefer to be in California, but nevertheless, I was in Manchester and it allowed me to shift my orientation away from the more theoretical into a much more practical situation. And after a while there, I got uh, one of the uh, senior professors, really quite a, a distinguished guy, uh, said, uh, I hope you're managing to keep yourself employed. I regarded that as slightly threatening. And one thing, again, led to another. And I finished up as the technical consultant on a book on forecasting, which in the end was published in 1976. There were a few books published in the uh, early 70s. The earliest forecasting texts go back in, at least into the 60s. But anyway, I, I did a lot of reading around forecasting. So I became a forecasting expert in about 19, well, hopefully before the book was published. Let's say it was 74 or 75. So that's how I, that the early stages of my career, it was a series of accidents, very much due really to this uh, friend of mine, still a friend of mine, with a PhD from MIT in operational research. I really like the story that you shared with us, like from the beginning and how you ended up by 1975 writing the paper and books. That's actually before I was born. And, and in the story, <laughs> that story is, is really inspiring for me. Just one point that you mentioned in your story that you were saying that you moved from California back to Manchester and you started working in England. Why did you prefer California and why did you move from there back to home? <laughs> well... California in the uh, 60s had uh, a bit of a reputation, uh, which was not, I have to say, wholly compatible with doing a PhD. I chose to do a PhD, so I won't say I was kept strictly to the straight and narrow, but it was compared with some of my friends. It was certainly a better performance on the PhD front. California was then a very attractive society. I mean, it's doubled, at least doubled in population since, uh, since the uh, 1970s. You know, it's a frightening change in many ways, which you see some of the environmental damage done to it. But why back to Manchester? It allowed me to move from being a, at a PhD level, a rather mediocre uh, mathematician, to my orientation, which was clearly more, much more applied. And I think that's really relevant to the long-term story as well. Well, it must have been quite the adventure back then to make such a big move. And I think it's something that the younger generation would find hard to imagine that you can't Google beforehand when your flight is going to land and reserve your, <laughs> you know, make a reservation for your stay and have contact with the professors beforehand via email. It must have been quite the undertaking to move from England to California. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question, Sherry, because there's a quite a funny aspect to that. So, you know, California in 1966, which is when I went out there, was a foreign land. And I didn't know anybody. And uh, I thought, well, I, I, I need to discover what the weather's going to be like. Where's the nearest city to uh, where I was going? Uh, well, I could look up uh, the weather in San Francisco and it was round about 55, 60, up to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. I arrived in September and it was 108 
what I haven't appreciated was the 60 miles between San Francisco airport or 70 miles between San Francisco airport and where I was going, which is basically Sacramento. So all those sorts of things, it was very difficult. It was much more moving into a strange land. I mean, compared with the settlers of uh, 1849 and the gold rush, it, it was nothing, but it seemed pretty risky to me, yeah. Yeah, I, I can imagine that similarly doing research back then, uh, you mentioned the punch cards uh, and running a regression. It's also so different right now. If I want to know something, if I want to look up a reference, I just go to Google Scholar. Um, <laughs> but back then, I mean, it was a lot of physical effort. You had to go to the library and look things up. The library? In doing the, uh, the forecasting book, as I said, I read widely. Manchester had a good library and I collected the references on four by three cards. And I collected a lot of references. You know, forecasting is a very, very wide subject. I think that's one of the themes I will return to. And you can read all the economics textbooks, and they don't talk about it as forecasting. But if, if you're trying to estimate an elasticity, you are effectively trying to say this estimate is relevant to the future. So that there may be some dynamics in the model or, or so on. So I collected these references. And at some stage later on, after the, the book was published, and I obviously had time on my hands, I decided to put them together in a bibliography, you know, back to Google Scholar or these search engines. And I, I published, uh, I think it was about 1978, bibliography of uh, business forecast. Well, it wasn't business for forecasting with some, I think it's some 5,000 or so references. Can you imagine collecting those by hand? And they're heavily keyworded. They're about 500 keywords. So it's available actually on the web uh, and an update, which I did a few years later with another few thousand references. So heavily keyworded. So that activity uh, had two consequences, one of which was perhaps a lot of wasted time. And it was edited, the, uh, the bibliography, using paper tape, if you can imagine that. This was prior to the uh, development of certainly PCs, but even uh, mini computers. Uh, I think the PDP-11 was just coming out. These were important innovations. In fact, one of the uh, disastrous forecasts I, I will share, and some of you will possibly know this forecast, The guy who I think was the chief executive of the Deck Corporation said he couldn't envisage any demand for a personal desktop computer. At the same time, I and my now wife and friend would be uh, editing on paper tape this bibliography. And at 10.25, we would adjourn to the bar next door by ourselves a pint. So that's a very personalized. Oh, and I, I forgot the key mention. We were playing one of the computer, earliest ever computer games um, about Colossal Cave and exploring the cave. So we were using it at that stage with beer on our hands and uh, to explore and associated with it was this appallingly inaccurate forecast because they didn't even know what people were using their computers for. So you touched upon the research and the way that you were writing papers back then and looking for references. How, how did you find it and you write it? It's, I think, very much where everything has changed since then, like it's been 50 years or so. Can you tell us a little bit about the forecasting aspect itself? Like, what are the things that you see in forecasting has changed from then? Obviously, one of the things is like with our access to information technology and with, with computers. So we have progressed a lot in terms of computational time. And so, but what are the other things that you see in forecasting? It has evolved since then. 
I don't think I've got anything particularly unusual to say about this. You've already mentioned some of the most obvious important changes, the growth of data, the growth of processing power with the hazards of overfitting in particular. But the basic ideas of forecasting are really quite old issues of evaluation, comparing with random walk. All that stuff is really, it didn't have a major presence in research at that point. Major contribution was to recognise the importance of taking a forecasting perspective on understanding both the current situation, but of course making forecasts, which in itself is a an important activity. But it, it's also important in terms of understanding a model. Almost no model is of any use if it's only valid retrospectively. And because it raises the obvious question of selectivity, it's applied in a sense, you may not know exactly why, but it's rather specific to the circumstances of that past data. So stability tests are crucial. So we're talking here about the evolution in in forecasting as a field, but you've also made a very interesting evolution in, in your career. Like you started out as what I call a hardcore statistician, so really technical. But in, a, in the past decade, two decades for sure, there has been more an accent on supply chain and on judgmental forecasting, uh, which I'm, of course, especially interested in. Was that a conscious move? Is that just something that interests in empirical aspect of research? My two concerns, I suppose three concerns, which have lasted through most of my research career, have been in model selection. So that's the first. Model selection is essentially a judgmental task. If you take just a regression model, the issue of how you build that regression model is, uh, in most circumstances, not in any sense a purely technical fashion. Now, with the advent of machine learning methods, you one could revisit that topic. But with standard statistical econometric methods, that model selection issue was I saw early on. And I think that was because of the bibliography, essentially, because of the wide reading. Could You could understand that people were arbitrarily choosing a particular method, often for theoretical reasons, and then not testing it out. So in fact, one of the early papers which was published in a management science, not an issue of management science, but they were publishing special volumes. And Spiros edited this, actually, and was the, the start of our, our relationship, published about 1979, was uh, concerned with the overall issue of model selection. The issue of judgment occurs naturally there, but I think it was the fortuitous discovery of a database which was concerned with uh, inflation uh, expectations, as I recall, and forecast by macroeconomists. And a paper I then published uh, with a co-author in Econ- Economica, which was concerned with the uh, inefficiencies of judgmental forecasts. Now, that is an area which has been uh, really quite long established. Victor Zarnovitz, one of the early associate editors, of the journal was very influential with a lot of work in the the area. And of course, it relates to rational expectations. Our expect, and I'm going to use a a date in the 60s, but you can probably go even further back than that. So this this piece of work, analyzing judgmental forecasts in terms of modeling them, trying to understand their autoregressive components, and discovering that 
Actually, people don't understand the dynamics of time series. They have no intuition about the dynamics of time series. So that was my early work in that area. The other element of it is the practicalities. One of the benefits of working in the Manchester Business School was a heavy emphasis on engagement with organisations. I early on set up a forecasting uh, course for MBA students, which was essentially the major part. I mean, it had some theoretical lectures, uh, but uh, was a, a practical project with companies working on their forecasting problems. And I discovered, surprise, surprise, that companies' perceptions of forecasting problems bear little relationship with, to academic formulations of the problem. I, I mean, I remember one, this is an extreme story, but we went into a, um, a tailoring company and they said, oh, no, we don't have any problems in forecasting demand. And I thought, there are problems in forecasting demand for men's suits. What on earth are they talking about? It turned out it was a price pr forecasting problem. Because all they did, they got rid of all their suits by uh, selling them on sale. So they just cut the price and cut the price till they had no, no suits left over. So, you know, the, the perceptions of, of, uh, of real forecasting problems. And again, this is a theme returned to in the context of research in forecasting is often unrelated to the way it's seen in the company or the organization more generally. So I then, from this work with master's students, got involved in trying to understand how organisations forecast. And again, two bits of work, one of which was based on data which was publicly available. But what you got, this was a government organisation concerned with construction industry forecasts of output. How many new houses you're going to build over the next three years? And this panel of experts was quite unusual. It was explicit about the growth assumptions of GDP, for example, that they were building into their forecasts of houses. So you could look at conditional errors made in the forecast. So trying to understand, again, the judgmental aspects of forecasting and what conditioned them. So that was one bit of work. And the second bit of work, based on a, an MBA dissertation, went into the business units of ICI, Imperial Chemicals Industry, which is long since broken up, but we see in AstraZeneca remnants of the pharmaceutical division. And we interviewed the forecasters and each of these divisions. What did they find problematic about forecasting? Well, it wasn't building an econometric model, I'll tell you that. It was essentially mostly about data. And in those days, and this was late 80s now, it was about databases, consistency, motivation, and somewhat the computer facilities to process it. They didn't discount the importance of technical uh, knowledge, but it was never one of their top priorities. And that was a paper published quite a bit later, about 94 or something like that, in the Journal of the Operational Research Society about the improvement of market forecasting. How did they perceive we could get the improvement? Yeah, I'm just curious because I'm experiencing it myself. After all this time researching human judgment in forecasting, do you still believe in human potential in the field of <laughs> forecasting? Human potential. Well, 
I think I, I believe in the potential for improvement and that the only way you're going to get improvement is through the humans in the systems making the forecasts. Do I believe that at least in the, you raised the question of the supply chain, the uh, supply chain forecasting, which is actually the dominant forecasting activity in the developed countries anyway, possibly the world, you know, people have to make demand forecasts one way or another. It's still obviously very judgmentally based and whether you can innovate with many of the ideas that have come through the forecasting and other journals is a very open question. I've been beating my head against a brick wall in the retailing area where I've consistently come across practices which are not remotely optimal. Now, of course, you get do get companies for a period of time which attempt to be very innovative. So we're currently seeing Walmart trying to decide how to respond to the M5 competition, for example. But their responses are not straightforward and they are organizationally based. And they have to take into account the people who've got to carry out the activities. I mean, I think one of the uh, relative failures, and we may see some improvements in the machine learning area, is in a sense we, we seem to have discovered, well, we have discovered that machine learning methods are likely to produce somewhat more accurate forecasts. But First, there's a question of how users interact with them. And secondly, effectively, are these out-of-the-box machine learning methods? No, they're nowhere near out-of-the-box machine learning methods. We discover that most out-of-the-box machine learning methods don't operate particularly effectively. So we there still are a number of questions, even in that rather specific circumstance of a major company investing in improving business forecasting. Amazon is an interesting case. We know a little about Amazon. And they do seem to actually be force majeure, really. They've had to. They've got so many products. They've somehow got to process and produce demand forecasts. So you do find examples, but you find many more examples of companies which, for good reasons and bad reasons, have made little progress. You touched upon a few interesting topics, and I can see that you emphasize a lot on the practicality and the applications of forecasting. So Uh, When we talk about, actually, that's something that we are also very much interested in. And that's why we call our podcast forecasting impact, because we are talking about the impact that forecasting can have actually in practice. And we very much emphasize also on the connections between academia and industry and how we can actually foster this collaboration. So I see that you're talking a lot about different forecasting applications for different companies. And I know that you have done also a lot of industry research and you have emphasized on this practicality part of the research. Can you tell us a little bit of your industry research and different projects that you have been involved in and share some of the lessons that you have learned with us? The center here in Lancaster was set up by me when I joined Lancaster in 1990. I noticed you asked why, and I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. But anyway, or at least I did know the answer, but I've forgotten about it. But it was focused on research in organizations. And that perhaps makes a distinction with Rob's unit, which is more generally focused on perhaps government or regional government. The clear focus of our activity is on individual organizational forecasts. It follows actually a tradition. The major early professor in Lancaster of what became the management science department was Willem Jenkins of Box Jenkins fame. So there is a history then of very substantial forecasting effort in Lancaster. 
Now, what lessons to be learned? Um, first, it's hard work uh, for reasons I've already touched on. Persuading organizations when it's just obviously in their interest. We had a case recently where we're talking about largest sums of money with a company and somehow it starts to founder on the organizational politics. So, and Spiros is leading a, with Len Tashman an activity to try and understand at least some of the reasons that organizations don't adopt, not best practice, reasonable practice is what we're talking about. Sometimes the answer, of course, lies in the software. But uh, back to what the lesson that I've learned, uh, it's a simple lesson, is focus on the client, listen to what they're saying. One of my more disastrous forecasting uh, experiences, this time was with central government, in fact, was uh, we were brought in to forecast, again. it was in the construction industry. And after trying to understand their data, it became clear that they invented their data. So obviously, forecasting data you're, you yourself is inventing is a slightly different activity. Anyway, we thought there was terribly exciting discovery. Our contact in the organization was not interested in that at all. And in fact, it was a disastrous project. Essentially, it got rejected. The paper that we produced got turned down. They just did not want to know their data was rubbish. So that was a very formative experience. And I'd previously been fired whilst in California doing some statistical research. So the experience of hitting the barriers that the client has, uh, sometimes the only way, I guess, is just to say, bye bye, this is the end of this project. We can't do it. But often you only discover, I'm talking personally now, what the, the barriers are later on in the project. So focus on the client is my major message and the client's constraints. I want to move on a little bit our conversation and move from the practical sides a little bit into also the research and the roles that you have had previously. Uh, you have been editor-in-chief in International Journal of Forecasting, so you probably have been on the other side, like making decisions about rejecting papers or accepting yeah. papers. And we know that all of us, like researchers, especially early career researchers and PhD students, they often struggle with publishing papers and it is getting more and more difficult. So can you tell us a little bit about your role as the editor-in-chief in International Journal of Forecasting? It's an interesting question. Along with uh, Spiros Makadakis and Scott Armstrong and initially a guy called Bob Carbone, we set up the Journal of Forecasting. And uh, with Spiros as the managing editor, but in, in charge in a way, the four of us shared the responsibilities. And then with the launch of the International Journal of Forecasting some three or so years later, again, we continued joint editorship. Well, finally, I think it was about 1987, I took over as editor-in-chief for uh, 10 years. But the point there is the number of submissions was relatively low. Let's talk about 100. I'm not sure it was even as high as that a year. Uh, I've just got a note from the current editor-in-chief of over 800 submissions. So a, a lot more process, effectively processing. You know, of course, the, the part of it has been the growth of management schools or business schools around the world and also the pressure to publish. So my advice publication strategy, which is not the question you asked, is really to choose topics that you regard as important. I think you need to be able to justify the importance of your re research. And as an editor, 
and are now just an associate editor, I'm much more concerned with papers which look at interesting problems than I am about technical proficiency. I'm not arguing against technical proficiency, but I think the heavy emphasis that many, uh, let's describe them as top journals, and the IJF is a top journal, but not uh, in the highest rankings, heavy emphasis on dotting every I and crossing every T means that papers that are important might not get published at all, or certainly over many years. So the career advice, and it's a dangerous advice, I do recognize, is to try and publish on important topics. And this links to to Shari's question earlier, how I chose the topics of my research, and in particular in judgment. Well, I really got sucked into the judgmental research, partially through uh, Paul Goodwin, who arrived as a PhD student of mine, falling into the vein of research that I somewhat started earlier. But it was the recognition in companies of the importance of judgment. And this means that the IJF, even now, publishes relatively few papers in the area, not because they get rejected, but because they're not written in the first place. And of course, an awful lot of the papers are published from economic departments uh, these days in the machine learning area, which neither disciplines recognize that the role of uncertain non-diagnostic information has in most forecasting problems. And certainly, more particularly, most major forecasting problems. The more important the forecasting problem is, the more important the role of judgment is. So encouraging papers that are concerned with important but neglected, often interdisciplinary issues or cross-disciplinary issues, is, I think, the role of the editor-in-chief. And I, I particularly think of a paper that I was much involved with not as, a, at that stage, an associate editor, I think, by Mark Moon and John Menser, uh, which was concerned with the organization of forecasting. The referees were vitriolic for one reason or another. So ignore the referees. Why ignore the referees? They're just one voice. You can always find criticisms. And the point from the IJF's point of view was that there'd been almost no papers published in the area. So if you asked what's the incremental contribution of this paper, uh, rather than whether it was perfect or whether you could argue that it was a major contribution. So aim for a major contribution, I I would say, but expect trouble. So if you're aiming for a, a post in a top American school, then you'll be relying on your dissertation supervisor to point you in the right direct, they, I say the right directions, I actually mean the career productive directions. They may well not be the right intellectual dimensions at all. So there really are general issues that you researchers, in, depending on their career intentions, which makes it very tough. I think, oddly enough, that in judgment, it's perhaps slightly easier in that there are some decent sources. I mean, OBA, Organizational Behavior and Human Development, that journal is reasonably open to forecasting papers. I have never submitted there, so I have no experience. So you, you, and there would be a career positive place to publish major. But in the operational research areas, management science is not and has not been particularly conducive unless you've got a particular entree into the the structure of management science. 
So, for example, my 2009 paper, which I published with uh, Paul and Michael Lawrence and Costas Nicolopoulos, was uh, it's good news. It was rejected by management science within six hours as not interesting. Well, it's been the most interesting paper and most cited paper I've published essentially ever. So that, that balance between something that's important and interesting and getting it published so your career is on track is extremely difficult, I think. So not a happy message. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say um, the early career researchers section of the IIF. If I go to them and I say, well, it's not a positive message, it's going to be really hard. Do you have any advice for really early career researchers? The process, I mean, are we talking about, you know, be prepared to move a lot, see that you broaden your network? What do you feel is one of the most important aspects to make progress in your career? I think it's important to look at where your priorities, both personal and professional, lie. You need to work, I think, in an organizational which is intellectually sympathetic to your endeavors. And that's not an easy thing to find. Lancaster, uh, the management school and the management science department is very good that way. We've never had cultural wars. Nobody's ever suggested to anyone that you should not be publishing papers in this area. So broadly, uh, no qualitative research. I've tended to shift between qualitative and quantitative research, organizational research. It, it stretches my skill level, as some of the referees have unkindly pointed out. On the other hand, I do regard these issues as important that people do it. So I would claim that my research has stretched out across a wide variety of areas. And to be in an organization which accepts that, and it's not just within management science, this applies across the board in other bits of Lancaster. There are plenty of places in the UK, some higher rank, but quite a few lower rank than Lancaster, which would not be able to say that. Now, how that applies in the Australian system, how it applies for you in Belgium or more widely in continental Europe, as I suppose I must learn to call it, is a question. I mean, different European countries have very different priorities in terms of promotion. So in a sense, what do you want to do? And then look at how that can be facilitated. I think shifting organizations because they offer a bit of extra money or even possibly a lot of extra money is very costly. So I think you really need to know what you're doing when you do that. So organizational moves. I would say that, wouldn't I, since I've essentially, since finishing my doctorate in 1971, so a mere 50 years ago, I've only been in two organizations, uh, at least full time. So that, that's a sort of self-serving remark, but at least the logic, I think, is clear that moving rapid, I mean, it's of course, very costly on your family uh, of life of your social life as well. So that, that is a general issue of how often you shift. But you do need to seek out a sympathetic organization. Don't think you can just bury your head in the sand and live on your own in that organ, in your professional life. I don't think for most people, not, a, not everyone, but most people, that's true. You've been talking about the forecasting and the research and the practice and the many aspects of 
research from 60s and 70s so far. And you touched upon on this barely before that uh, you founded the Journal of Forecasting. How is that about the International Institute of Forecasting? You're also one of the founders of International Institute of Forecasting and, uh, yes. <laughs> um, and the International Symposium of Forecasting which is actually organized by uh, IAF, is one of the best conferences that I have been to. And I know that we have had this conversation before that you mentioned you have been to all ISF conferences except one. I'm curious to know how ISF has evolved from the beginning and where do you see the community is going? It started life, the IIF, essentially as the four founding fathers that I've mentioned. And it was only later in the late 80s and into the 90s that conscious decision was made to open it up to make it a more democratic institute with directors who were not necessarily the founders. So, you know, and the founders always found it difficult to give up. And it, it was difficult for Scott at this stage, Scott Spiros and myself, to give up that responsibility and control, not merely responsibility. The ethos of the IIF therefore changed, and it changed slowly. The interest by members now is higher than it's ever been. So, and I think that's great. I think it's really important to have a, uh, reflect a wide range of people. I think uh, the Early Career Research Group is an excellent innovation. So with the opening up, we've started collectively to innovate in the Institute. And I think that's been fantastic. I mean, to give you another example, the founding of Foresight uh, as a practitioner journal was at the time extremely controversial. Some actually quite personally vicious arguments, I think, around it because it was basically seen as a diversion. And because of my interest in practice, I never saw it as a diversion. It was uh, always supportive. So it was an argument. Uh, I think there are very few people would argue that it's not been a successful innovation and complementary to the IIF. The question of the, the uh, symposia is an interesting one. There, things have changed less. As Scott Armstrong always points out, that the Philadelphia conference, which was 1984, no, wasn't, 1983, I guess was the largest conference apart from Rio, and which was virtual. It had about a just under a thousand people uh, at that conference. Why was it so successful early on? Well, partially because there weren't any competitive conferences or not very many competitive conferences. So you could attract people from all sorts of disciplines whilst attracting e econometricians, for example, not applied econometricians, but theoretical econometricians would be more, more difficult. They've got many alternative conferences. Uh, marketing science is another example. Again, a very successful conference. But why is the ethos? The ethos, I think, was set up early on and has managed to sustain itself, which is essentially engagement by senior people would be my view. I think that if you've gone to a, an informs meeting, people uh, swan in and swan out, don't they, whether they're junior people or senior people. And of course, part of it is the size of the conference. I think a thousand is probably rather large. Five hundred is fine. You can get around. So size, openness, engagement. I had formative experience, not at a, a, an ISF conference, but about the same time, early 80s, was to go to an economic, Western Economic Association conference, I think, in San Diego, where, and I'm going to guess his name, except he shouldn't do, because he'd won his, a Nobel Prize. 
economist was there in all the sessions making points to junior researchers. And I think uh, it's something that we share in the founders, the people who've been active in these early days and later days of the ISFs. I think it's really important, not because we're necessarily saying anything profound, but just to say that your views are important. I want to hear what you have to say. I think it's important that we engage and that that really does set a tone. I 100% agree with that. And we definitely recommend to whoever is listening to this podcast and hasn't been to ISF to try it once at least. Thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate your time. And uh, also, I really, really enjoyed our conversations. I hope. So did I. A very uh, enjoyable and stimulating discussion, at least for me, whether it will be the case for our listeners, who knows. Um, where do people can see more about you? Probably your address on Lancaster University? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Forecasting Impact today. I hope that you have also enjoyed, just like us, that we really enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, uh, be legendary. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.